What can we do to reduce the lostness of our community? And while our gut response might be we should share the gospel with all of our neighbors, that's not the whole of Christian mission. That's part of it. But as we've said several times, your part of the redemption of St. Tammany consists of, first, promoting the gospel with your life, and second, proclaiming the gospel with your lips. Every one of us has a part to play. It's not the churches that are going to take the gospel institutionally to our neighbors. It is the people of God. It is every one of us owning our role. And what does it look like? First, promoting the gospel with our life and then proclaiming it with our lips. So, yes, you will need to talk to some people about Jesus. But your life must also reflect well on the gospel that you proclaim. Our words and our lives need to be in sync with one another. And as a result, when you look at the church, one essential apologetic that convinces people of the gospel's truth and power is a transformed life. Is that what people say about us? Is that what people say about the church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America, in Louisiana, in St. Tammany Parish? Those are people whose lives have been radically changed. That's what we've been chewing on for several weeks now. So what can we do with our lives actionably that will attend to the lostness of our neighbors? And in the last two weeks, we've seen two of these gospel-promoting activities. We talked about prayer, and last week we talked about generosity with our time and with our home. Today we're going to talk about a third gospel-promoting task, which is honesty. Now, what do I mean by honesty? I don't just mean integrity, telling the truth, uh, simple honesty with your words. No, I mean this. Living a life that is externally consistent with your faith. Living a life that agrees with the faith you profess to believe. I don't know if any of y'all know Scott Cheatwood. Uh, Scott grew up in, in Mandeville. He's now an ordained EPC pastor in Monroe, Louisiana. Scott grew up in church. But in adulthood, he kind of drifted away from church. And a big part of that was his job. Uh, He worked in the restaurant industry, and he was doing quite well in that industry. He, uh, and as you know, in the restaurant industry, you spend a lot of time uh, on the weekend working. And Scott was a go-getter at work. So eventually, he stopped going to church. Then he he either started a new restaurant or he got a new boss. I don't remember which one was the case, but He got a new boss, and his new boss was not a Christian. And after he had put Scott's work schedule together, he gave it to Scott, and he said to him, hey, man, I made sure you had Sundays off. And Scott was confused of why. Sunday's like our busiest day. And his boss said, well, I mean, I know you're a Christian, so you go to church, right? And Scott Scott kind of paused. He says, "Uh, I haven't gone to church in a really long time, man. He felt like he'd found a a, a good reason to not worship the Lord. But this unbeliever expected him to live in a way that was consistent with the faith that he professed. His unbelieving boss wanted to accommodate to his faith. And what Scott realized was this. His unbelieving boss expected him to act like a Christian. But he didn't expect himself to act that way. His life was promoting something other than the faith he professed. And as it turns out, that event, which was really awkward for Scott, was kind of a a, a pivotal moment for the Lord calling Scott back to himself, back to the church, 
and eventually into ministry. And that's a whole other story. But here's my point. The people, believing and unbelieving, who know and love you, expect you to live consistently with your faith. They expect that from you. When I was... uh, (laughs) One night I was playing a board game. Somebody recently told me that they, they appreciate my transparency in the pulpit. They said, if you get any more transparent, though, I'm going to be uncomfortable with you walking around in your underwear up there. One night I was playing a board game with several unbelieving friends, and I was the only professing Christian in the room, and I had a terrible turn in the game. I'd had a bad week already. This was supposed to be relaxing. It wasn't relaxing. I was irritated. And in a moment of frustration and weakness, I shouted out a blasphemous curse word. And do you know... How my unbelieving friends responded? One of them, a grown man, not a Christian. I've heard him say like every word in the book. He looked at me and said, Jason, don't talk like that. That's not cool, man. They expected consistency from me. And they knew the faith that I professed. Last week, we talked about developing friendships with unbelievers, having them in our homes eating, drinking, playing together, but eventually that becomes a friendship. There's only so long you can talk about the food or the game that you're playing. Eventually you have to get to know each other. And when that happens, Christians can get nervous. We might hesitate to talk about our faith. We might act differently around them than we do around others because we know they're not professing Christians. Maybe we don't want to be perceived as strange so we don't deviate from the norms in our office, in our classroom, or elsewhere. Maybe we want to be people pleasers, and we're afraid of how people will respond if we're consistent with our faith. And the result is that we kind of hide our faith. We do things or we say things that sound more like the world than they do like Jesus. Or we simply bite our tongue and blend in. So what I'm inviting you to do is to simply be honest. Be consistent. Be who you profess to be regardless of who you're around. And the people that love you and know you are not going to be freaked out by that. Now, what do I mean by all this practically? Living a life that is externally consistent with your faith looks like good works. But we can simply call it honesty or transparency. Let's see how Jesus put it in verses 14 through 16 in our text. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what's Jesus talking about here? Your unbelieving friends and family, the people to whom you are giving your time and opening your home, they should be able to see something different in you. They should be able to see your good works. And when they do, it should be stirring to them in some way. It should seem different to them. Perhaps it is even compelling to them. So they would say, maybe this God thing actually is real. Look at how differently they love people. Look at how differently they deal with their life, how satisfied they are. Look at the change that has occurred in their lives. Now, this isn't the hypocritical showboating of the Pharisees, right? Jesus hammered those guys because they would do pious religious things to get the praise of people, to get people's adulation. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about living a life that is consistent with your faith regardless of where you are or who you're around. So think about the people on your Oikos map. 
Y'all remember this? I'll show it to you again. If you didn't get a chance to do this a few weeks ago, um, all it is a chart to kind of show you who are the people who are close to you, but who are far from God. This is helpful as we're having these conversations. You can be thinking of specific people that you know don't trust the Lord, but you're in relationship with. So we're not talking about some hypothetical possibility. We're talking about real living people that know you and love you, that you have relationships with. Think about those folks. Think about the people who are close to you, but far from God, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, your friends who don't profess faith in Jesus. What is Jesus asking you to do among them? What is he asking you to do when they come over to your house? What are these good works that you should shine forth in your life so that they would consider glorifying the same God that you glorify? Well, you have a whole book that answers that question. Uh, I, I was really tempted to preach an entire series on 1 Peter right in the middle of this sermon series because 1 Peter is great. You want to go dig in that for a while. That'll show you some great good works that he calls us to. Go read Ephesians. It's another great text. But conveniently, Jesus gives us a list of characteristics uh, in our text. So go with me back to the beginning of chapter 5. And these are some examples of the kinds of things that we should be shining with in our lives. So back to Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the first good work that Jesus points to here? Poverty of spirit. Jesus invites us to be honest and open with our own deficiency and with his sufficiency. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? There's been a lot of ink poured uh, out over that, uh, what it means. In fact, I wrote my undergraduate honors thesis on that very question. What does it mean, blessed are the poor in spirit? I actually disagree with what I wrote then. What is this characteristic of a Christian that Jesus calls blessed? That if we shine with this poverty of spirit, it draws others to the gospel. Well, I think it's partially a throwback to Jeremiah chapter 9 in which the Jewish prophet Jeremiah said this, Thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. What is poverty of spirit? To have a realization of how weak and broken you are in every way that you stop believing your own press. You got nothing. You don't have any might. You don't have any riches. You don't have any power. All we have is Jesus. And he's the one we celebrate. He's the one we promote. It shouldn't be any surprise. If you've been around here for a couple of months or so, it shouldn't be a surprise that as a pastor, I've been learning how to eat crow in the last five months or so. I feel like I've apologized personally to 80% of the people in the room. 
I've goofed up some stuff. Our session has goofed up some really important things. We didn't communicate well about the Chesterton Academy situation. We, uh, we screwed up our building fund accounting. It wasn't anything nefarious. We just did accounting wrong and ended up short. I even scheduled a discipleship group at the same time as a prayer meeting. Like if, if you've got a shin around here, I've kicked it probably in the last few months. There have been times in my life and in my ministry where my failures in that regard would have really crushed me personally, would have really messed me up, because I take my work really seriously, and I take the work of our session really seriously. But I found a lot of comfort in this idea. It's a basic gospel idea that I, your pastor, am deeply flawed. I'm sinful. I'm often wrong. My wife will tell you that. Also, I'm limited. I'm not just a sinner. I'm a creature. I'm not God. And that's true of every elder on our session as well. Their wives will tell you that too. But here's my comfort and hope in the middle of these failures that we've confessed to you over the last few months. If God uses our church to spread the name of Jesus to the lost, if he does any good, redemptive work, you know who can't claim any glory for that? <laughs> this guy. Or any of our leadership. Because we're broken people. He is the only one who can do anything through any of us. You see, this is not just a, a story about me. This is a story about all of us. In and of ourselves, none of us have anything good anything powerful, anything miraculous, if there's any good done in or through us, it is only the work of God and his Holy Spirit. Poverty of spirit is recognizing that and living into that, being honest with our failure, with our brokenness, with our finitude. And how do we get there? Well, I've figured that one out. Failure. <laughs> failure makes us aware of our deficiency. And the gospel reminds us of Christ's sufficiency. So whether our failure is sin or whether it, whether it is just error, the gospel reminds us that he is the one with the power. He is the one with the glory. He is the one with goodness. So let's take that idea then that we are all poor in spirit, whether we live into that or not, and let's think of our unbelieving friends. I'm actually very comfortable apologizing to you guys and confessing my sins and failures to you because you're Christians. You understand the gospel. You've sinned before. You've been forgiven of much. And so we can confess and forgive freely in the body of Christ. But imagine what would happen if in a friendship with an unbeliever, you sinned against them or you failed them in some way. And then upon recognizing it, what if you confessed your sin to them and you called it a sin? What if you asked for forgiveness in a state of humility and repentance? What do you think would happen if you were to be that open with them about your poverty of spirit, the same poverty of spirit that's true of all of us? What do you think your unbelieving friend would do? I'll tell you because I've done it before. They will look at you awkwardly and say something like, well, dude, I, don't, I mean, I don't think that's a sin. I mean, you, you just messed up. It's a mistake. I responded and said, no, 
The Bible's really clear that what I did was a sin because I failed to love you as I ought. It is a sin. And I need you to forgive me. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want this to come between us. That's honesty with our faith. That is consistency. This is a transparency. And it doesn't necessarily tell your unbelieving friend the gospel. But boy, does it paint a picture of the gospel that expresses it to them in a way perhaps they've never heard or seen of before. So these are the kinds of relationships with unbelievers, ones that are of depth of love and honesty and and confession that really stirs people's hearts and makes them wonder, what's wrong with this guy? (laughs) What's different about this person? So be open with your deficiency. Be open with your poverty of spirit and also be open with the sufficiency of Christ. So that's the first way we should be consistent externally with the faith we profess. Second, Jesus commands and even models being open with our grief and hope concerning personal or societal failure, injustice, and collapse. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. What kind of mourning is Jesus talking about here? Well, how do we see Jesus mourning in the Gospels? In John chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus died. And when Jesus got there, he wept. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus sees people who are hungry, who are sick, who are struggling, when he sees the brokenness of the world, he is moved with compassion. And that compassion moves him to act. Jesus saw the condition of the world. He saw the condition of people's lives. And he grieved that. Grieving the brokenness in the world is not a political issue that any party can claim. This is for those who have eyes to see what the world should be, what it was created for and where it's headed one day. And we look at it and say, no, it should not be like this. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. You see, Jesus in John 11, he's weeping that Lazarus has died. What does he do verses later? You say a little louder. That's right. He raises him from the dead. That was no surprise to Jesus. He knew what he was going to do. He knew Lazarus's future. And yet even with that hope, even knowing what would happen in Lazarus's life, he still wept. He grieved. Even though he had hope. Do you know what our world has? Grief without hope. Grief without hope strangles and smothers the soul under the weight of our brokenness and suffering. So let's not forget what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We grieve in light of the gospel. I felt so stupid at my grandmother's funeral back in January. Uh, Y'all know my grandmother passed at the beginning of the year, and I was asked to give the eulogy. And afterwards, I was asked to do the graveside service. And um, I, I kept it together during the eulogy. There were some tears. It was kind of a respectable sort of cry, you know, while you're up talking in front of people. Uh, and during the graveside service, man, I was, I was, you know, very professional. Felt really like a pastor. <laughs> but both of them, as soon as I finished what I was doing, 
man, I cried my eyes out. Like in the room, with everybody, at the gravesite. And it wasn't like a respectable crying. This is like the whole body heaving like snot coming out of your nose. Like just a real mess. And I felt like an idiot because I just talked about the gospel. Like I have no question about where my grandmother is today. And, and I, I communicated hope. And I was inviting my, my unbelieving cousins to, to faith. So I felt like really stupid. A few days later, I remembered my prayer that morning. I really didn't know what to pray. And I asked the Lord, I said, just help my cousins to see something of Jesus in me. And I realized, wait a second. (laughs) Jesus wept at the graveside of his friends. So they did see that in me. He grieved deeply, even though his hope was intact. Your unbelieving friends and family are being smothered with grief. And they have nowhere to go with it. They have nothing to do with it that is meaningful and lasting. So can you imagine what it would look like if you and I were to grieve with them? What if they were to see us grieving the chaos in our lives, the chaos in our world, but to do it in light of the gospel? Because what does Jesus say in verse 4? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. We know that comfort is coming. If it doesn't come in this life, Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things right. We know the hope of the gospel in this life and the next, but our neighbors don't. So we grieve with them. We grieve in front of them and we do so in a way informed by our hope. We show them a better way of grief, a better way of life. Really, this is what we were made We grieve in light of the gospel. And man, what a powerful way to promote the gospel to someone else. Here's a third good work that Jesus invites us to shine through our lives. Jesus commands... Did y'all not get that? Did y'all get that? All right, all right. Jesus challenges us to treat other people in a way that is informed by the gospel. Which means pursuing meekness, mercy... And peace. Let's look at verses 5, 7, and 9. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Every one of these statements is about our relationships with other people and how we treat other people. And it stands in stark contrast to how the world, how people in the world normally treat each other. So we live in a world that glorifies conflict, a world that promotes power, a culture that cancels the people they disagree with, and Jesus calls us to a different way. In fact, he says, the meek will inherit the earth. (laughs) Have you ever heard anything more countercultural than that? The meek are those who inherit the earth. Concerning mercy, Jesus tells us that rather than taking justice into our own hands and demanding justice for me, rather than judging people and cutting them off from relationship with us, instead we show patient mercy. We extend to them the mercy that God has extended to us. Jesus tells us to be people not just that want peace, who hope for peace, who prefer peace, but to be people who make peace in the world. So consider this. What if we became known among our friends, not only as the people who grieve what's broken in the world, 
Not only is people who believe in the sufficiency of God for me, but believe that God's grace, that the power of the cross was sufficient for the world. What if we were the ones who forgave and sought restoration from others, with others more than we sought personal justice? Wouldn't that be strange? Wouldn't that be compelling? Wouldn't that be different in today's cultural milieu? In a world defined by transactional, disposable relationships, these are the kinds of relationships that we were meant to have. We were created for this. People want this. Can you imagine this revolutionary kind of living if we treated other people this way? It would shock them. And it would challenge them and invite them to glorify our Father in heaven. This is the honesty that we need, a life of love that reflects the gospel everywhere that we go. In short, the whole of Scripture invites us to be so enamored with God in Christ that we desire to imitate him with our lives. What is mercy? How do we know what mercy is? We look to Jesus. What does it look like to be a peacemaker? We look to Jesus. What does it look like to be meek? We look to Jesus. He is the one. And if we are so taken by who he is, I've been talking to my kids about this. We don't, kids, we don't want you just to know about Jesus. We want you to love Jesus. We want you to have a sense of who he is and to be taken by him because when we are gripped by a a vision of his beauty, it changes us. We want to be more like him. Look at verses 6 and 8. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What will make us hunger and thirst for righteousness? What will make us hunger and thirst for purity? What will make us hunger and thirst to be like God, but to know him and to see him as he is? And this goes back to our first sermon in this series. We started by talking about reality. What is the most fundamental truth in the Bible? The the, the starting point for our understanding of reality. This. There's only one God. Every other God is either nothing or a demon. And the one God of the Bible, we don't just owe him obedience. He's wonderful. He deserves our worship. He deserves our love. He deserves our hearts. He is beautiful. If we love him, will we not want to be like him? Will we not want to be pure as he is pure? Will we not want to be righteous as he is righteous? Will we also not want to be meek, merciful? Will we not want to be a peacemaker? All I'm inviting you to do is to be externally consistent with the things we say here every Sunday. The things we profess with our mouths. It's simple honesty. And it's one of the most powerful witnesses that we can have. Love God. And let your love for him transform how you live. Honesty is an essential gospel-promoting task. Simply living externally in a way that is consistent with the faith that we profess. And Jesus gives us a list of characteristics in Matthew 5 to consider. Like I said, you can look at 1 Peter, you can look at Ephesians, you can really look at the whole Bible and see a pile of different ways that we can do this. But I want to invite you to introspection and repentance. How have you been living among your unbelieving friends, family, and neighbors? 
can they see the transformation of the gospel in you? If not, spend some time with Matthew 5 this afternoon, this week, asking the Holy Spirit to show you how you can be more honest, more transparent with your lifestyle so that the gospel will be promoted among the people who are close to you but are far from God. Let's pray. What wondrous grace you've given that we might be called the children of God. That you, Lord Jesus, didn't consider equality with your Father something to be grasped, but instead took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Lord Jesus, when you were counted a sinner, when you were forsaken, cut off, we sinners were able to be included. We were made children of God. And so we praise you for that. We're humbled in that. And we ask that you would help us to live in light of that. Every day, may we be a people indelibly shaped by the gospel of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that these characteristics would come to bear in our lives everywhere that we go so that we would shine with the glory of Jesus and that those around us would glorify him with us. This we pray in his name. Amen.